During my time off in August, I followed through with my plans to watch some older movies, some of which had such powerful messages. One that I came across that was new to me had one of my favorite actors, Tom Hanks, in it. It was a movie called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. This is a fictional story that director Stephen Daldry makes 9-11 personal for the pain of a boy named Oscar and his family. Oscar is a very bright nine-year-old who loses his father, Thomas, played by Tom Hanks, when the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. Oscar had a very close relationship with his father. He was the one who guided him through life and was his closest friend. He was the one person who was able to help him feel safe in the world around him. You see, Oscar has psychological issues which causes him to shut down emotionally when he is anxious and at times engage in destructive behavior. He carries a tambourine wherever he goes, which he shakes to calm himself. Oscar is afraid of suspension bridges and germs and airplanes and fireworks, trains and scaffolding, sewers and subway grates, just to name a few. His father had been trying to encourage Oscar to overcome his fears by playing a game that helped him overcome them, or at least cope with them and all his issues. One game was a mystery reconnaissance mission called Recon Expedition Number 6, where they looked for the missing sixth borough of New York. This required Oscar to do research which involved approaching complete strangers to get answers to clues that his father had left him. Just prior to his death, Thomas had been encouraging Oscar to go on the swing set at Central Park. He tried to explain to him that feeling of freedom he enjoyed as a child, swinging high up into the air. But Oscar had refused, saying, I'm sorry, Dad, it's just too dangerous. On September 11th, 2001, Oscar's school had been closed and everyone was sent home early because of the attack. When he arrived home, there were five messages on the phone's answering machine. He listened to each one of them. They were all from his dad, calling from the South Tower. He was trying to reassure Oscar and his mom that he was safe, and that the people on his floor were just waiting for the firemen to arrive and take them safely out of the building. As Oscar finished listening to the fifth message, the phone rang again. It was his dad. But Oscar couldn't move a muscle. He just stood there and listened to his dad's voice on the speaker. Oscar was paralyzed with fear as he saw through their apartment window the burning World Trade Center across the city. And then suddenly, his dad's voice was cut off in mid-sentence as the tower collapsed. Oscar's story starts a year after this tragic event when he is still dealing with the enormity of his dad's death. Oscar is fascinated by science, particularly astronomy, and he had a thought one day. He said, and I quote, 
If the sun were to explode, you wouldn't even know about it for eight minutes because that's how long it takes for light to travel to us. For eight minutes, the world would still be bright and it would still feel warm. It was a year since my dad died and I could feel my eight minutes with him is running out. In the reading we hear today from Mark's Gospel, we are at a place where the disciples' assumptions and hopes about what Jesus would accomplish begin to collapse around them. It's like the clock had started to tick loudly, signaling that proverbial eight remaining minutes with Jesus had just begun to wind down. Jesus' announcement about what would happen to him was the beginning of the end. Up to this point, Jesus, well, he seemed unstoppable as a healer, a teacher, a miracle worker. And just before this story, Jesus had fed 4,000 people on only seven loaves of bread. He had just healed a blind man. Things seemed to be looking up. Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi, which is a Roman area in the northern Galilee region of Israel. He had been preaching and teaching in this area, and this incident, well, it feels a bit like a political campaign stop, where Jesus seems to be holding a kind of focus group. How are we doing? What are people saying about me? The focus group and the disciples are repeating what they have heard from the crowds. And then Jesus asks, what do other people think about who I am? It's not really a bad question for any of us to ask from time to time. On the one hand, the saying is true that other people think of you is none of your business. But on the other hand, think about it this way. What is our church's reputation in the community? What do people say about us? That's certainly worth being aware of. The disciples reply, well, some say you're a prophet. You remind them of John the Baptist, or even Elijah, or one of the other prophets. It's all very exciting. We're doing well. But then Jesus asks them the real question on his mind. Who do you say that I am? Peter has insight into this and declares, you are the Messiah. In the Hebrew culture, the word Messiah has connotations of a mighty king riding on a stallion, using military power to vanquish their foes. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, immediately following the affirmation Peter makes, Peter, you are right, and on this rock I will build my church. But not in Mark's Gospel, though. In Mark, Jesus responds to Peter by saying, essentially, you are right, but let's just keep this on the down low. Let's not say anything about this to anybody, about this Messiah stuff. Not yet, anyway. And that's a bit curious, don't you think? Peter has figured out who Jesus is, but Jesus doesn't want Peter or anybody else to say anything about it. Why not, we wonder. Peter seems... He sees Jesus as the return of the true king of Israel. 
But Rome dominates the country at the moment and rules it under the authority of the emperor's appointed governor. Peter hopes that with Jesus as their ruler, they can restore Israel's fortunes when they kick the Romans off the land. Peter has the right name for Jesus, but he misses the real messiahship and thus what real discipleship is all about. And Jesus points out his error in no uncertain terms. Actually, Jesus shifts gears altogether. He moves to a very different word to describe his identity. He calls himself the son of man, or as the contemporary English Bible puts it, the human one, as alluded to in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus outlines what is he's going to have to undergo for being who he is, the rejection of the religious authorities, suffering, being put to death. And he says it plainly, no varnish, he says it directly. Peter responds as we might if someone told us that they had received a terminal diagnosis. He grabs Jesus and says, no, this can't be. This should never happen to you. Peter doesn't like the implications of Jesus' deeper self-understanding. Jesus knows who he is and therefore what he must do. Jesus is not offering what Peter and the other disciples are looking for. Instead, by pointing to God, Jesus is trying to show how God meets us in our vulnerability. When we are suffering and when we face loss, like Oscar, a God who meets us in those moments when we are in our deep need, when all we had worked for, hoped for, and striven for has collapsed. When we realize that we are quite simply incapable of saving ourselves and need of a God who will meet us where we are with what we need. Which means that we don't necessarily get the God we want, but instead, we get the God we need. So far, Jesus has been talking only to his disciples. But after this rebuke of Peter, Jesus calls the crowds to come closer and to listen. And he raises a second, equally important question to consider. He takes up the question of Christian life, stating plain and simple that those who wish to follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross. Not only what do you say that I am, but so what? So, so what will we do today in our lives if we decide to follow him? Perhaps we have to pause here for a moment, though, because we all too often view Jesus' language of cross-bearing and denial through the lens of something like Weight Watchers. You know, have a little less of the things that you like. Don't overindulge in the things that make you happy. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about at all here. Here's the thing. We tend to think that life is something you go out and get or earn or buy or win. But it turns out that life is like love. It can't be won or earned or bought, only given away. And the more you give away, well, the more you get back. 
In fact, as the first time parents experience profoundly, only when you love others so deeply do you most understand what love really is. Likewise, only when you give away your life for the sake of others do you really discover it. Somehow, in thinking about how to fulfill the needs of others, our own deepest needs are met. This, then, is the mystery of life and the key to the kingdom of God. In the end, Jesus' challenge is that the only thing we can hold onto are the things we give away, like love and mercy and kindness and compassion. This is the kind of life that our surrounding culture can hardly imagine, the kind that comes in and through sacrificial love and service to another. In Jesus, God enables us to find and accept a way that is different from the ways of the world. So you may be wondering what happened to Oscar in the story I first shared with you. Well, a year after 9-11, he has the courage to go into his father's bedroom and look through the things in his closet. Oscar notices a blue vase way up on the top shelf, and as he tries to grab it, it falls and breaks. Inside, he finds an envelope containing a key. Somehow, Oscar senses that this key is the resolution to his grief and loss and on the envelope is one word, black. It must be a surname, he thinks. He checks and finds that there are 416 people in the phone book who have the name black, who live at 216 different addresses. And so over the summer, Oscar goes to as many of these addresses as he can to see if the key fits the lock belonging to one of them. He finds people with the, with the last name of Black from all walks of life, from all races, from all cultures, each with their own individual stories of joy and tragedy. But in finding and in meeting them, Oscar finally discovers himself. He can reach out to other people, even total strangers for help. He realizes that while his father was his lifeline in his early life, now there are others he can turn to. And in the closing scene, Oscar returns to the swing his father had shown him in Central Park that he was afraid to get on. But now he has the courage to swing high and to feel the joy of the air rushing past him like his dad said he would. As he swings, he notices a note stuck with a piece of gum under the seat. It was left written by his dad, and it said, Congratulations, Oscar, with unbelievable bravery and wisdom beyond your years, you have solved recon expedition number six. You have proven the existence of the sixth borough and your own excellence wherever they are now. The people of the Sixth Borough celebrate you, and so do I. It's time to go home. Maybe, like Oscar, we are each holding a key, trying to find the lock that it fits into. 
wanting to follow Jesus, but being held back by our own fears. The key to discipleship is that we lose our life, but we find our life by losing our fear. This week is uh, the first week for children to return to school. It's the start of a new fall season, which I believe we will have much in store for us. And this reminded me of something that I read and I've continued to say from years ago that was written by Glennon Melton. She wrote a letter to her son who was getting ready for his first day in the third grade. It was all about shaping his identity. Let me share this with you. She started by telling him the story of how when she herself was in third grade, there was a little boy named Adam in her class. He was different from the other kids and was shunned by his classmates and always on his own. So he never talked to him. Not once. She never invited him to sit with her at lunch or play with her at recess. I think she told her son that God puts people in our lives as gifts. The children in your class this year are some of God's gifts to you. So treat each one as a gift from God, every single one. If you see somebody who is being left out or hurt or teased, part of your heart will hurt a little. That's good because something, sometimes heartache is how God speaks to us, saying, wake up, one of my children is hurting. She went on to write, we don't send you to school to become the best at anything at all. We already love you as much as poss we possibly could. We send you to school to learn and to practice being brave and kind. Kind people are brave people. Brave is not something you should wait to feel. Brave is a decision. It's a decision that compassion is more important than fear, than fitting in than following the crowd. Trust me, baby, it is. It's always more important. Don't try to be the best this year, honey. Just be grateful and kind and brave. That's all you'll ever need to be. Take care of those classmates of yours and your teacher too. You belong to each other. What Glennon Melton was doing with her, with her son, I believe, was reminding him of his identity, which is to be a blessing to others. And at those moments when we feel most vulnerable, when we are suffering and face loss, like so many have, we have a God we can turn to. When we realize that we are quite simply incapable of saving ourselves and in need of a God who will meet us where we are, which means that we don't necessarily get the God we want, but we do get the God we need. May it be so. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving God in Jesus who came to give us abundant life, fill us with the strength and courage to follow, that we might have the abundance of the true life you intend for us, and that others may see your love and grace at work in us and follow us as well. Amen. And now let us join our voices together for our closing hymn this morning, Jesus Shall Reign. Let us sing. 